Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to our second Christmas Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio, Pat Leahy, Fia Kelly and Jennifer Bray. And we're going to rock straight into it. Uh, Here's a question from Stephen Kelly. Over in Britain, I've been following the election. It's blatantly obvious that there are certain uh, media outlets that are quite biased towards one party. My question is, is do you see any comparison of that in Ireland? For example, the Telegraph in the UK is is known for Tory bias. Um, is there any Irish equivalent to Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil? So it's an interesting question, I think, although some, I know, Pat, you're no, no great fan of, of media navel-gazing, but there is clearly a big difference between the way Irish newspapers approach the political landscape and the way British ones do. And British ones, indeed, are quite un- unusual, I think, in how robust they are in defence of their political positions. I mean, across the world, you know, different societies have, have different media organisations that may have political preferences or biases or whatever you prefer to, to, you prefer to characterise them. But in the United Kingdom, if you look at the covers of the Daily Mail and the Express and indeed the Telegraph, which is paper which I think has changed a lot in the last, yeah. in the last few years, um, you really, they are absolutely ferocious uh, in, in, in defence of their positions in a way that you don't see in Ireland. No, you don't. And I think the situation has become more partisan in, uh, in the UK as perhaps reflecting developments in their politics. I thought it was one of the frankly depressing things about the British election was how partisan the debate was amongst people on both sides, both in newspapers and on social media, where the first, where an awful lot of media, prominent voices in the media simply became campaigners for uh, for their side. And I don't think we have that here. We might be the worst people to judge our own performance. So maybe it'd be interesting to conduct a poll of our listeners on that. But it is certainly the case that we strive to be fair and balanced uh, in the true sense of the word rather than the Fox News sense of the word as to whether we succeed in doing so. And it's something that we examine uh, ourselves about all the time, particularly during referendums, election campaigns. It's one of the things we'll be talking about in our preparations for our coverage of the general election next year. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something that we strive to do as to how successful we are uh, best for the listeners That's to ask for others, themselves others rather to say, than although, the political parties. Well, well, let me put the question in a slightly different way because uh, all three of you have worked um, as political correspondents for other newspapers. Um, are they all the same? You know, is the, is the, does culture influence the way the political coverage um, carries out within those different media organisations, Jennifer? Um, I don't, I've worked as a political correspondent for three newspapers and in all of the newspaper, all of those three, I never saw any evidence of that kind of bias that we're talking about across the water, that partisan coverage. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that it, it was painfully obvious 
um, in terms of the last election uh, in the UK, the stance the different newspapers took, should they put it on their front page, they had endorsements and there was, uh, and I think it's interesting, Pat, that you say it'd be interesting to see a study of our own um, leanings uh, from people who aren't us, basically, but there was a study done in the UK in the aftermath or in the context of the general election just gone and they found that the papers with the highest circulation, so we're talking about the, the Sun and the Mail, they had the most obvious pro-conservative, um, pro-government deferential stories and um, that was borne out. They did a, a weighting, basically, and stories in newspapers that were viewed to be positive were given a plus one, a negative, a minus one. And when they looked at it in the round, the Conservative had plus, I think, four, and Labour had minus 91. So, I mean, I thought that was really interesting. And, and um, sorry, I'm just spouting out studies now, but there was another one um, done looking at, well, like newspaper coverage, does it actually have an impact on, on, on voting? And they did, um, I think it was the London School of Economics, they looked at Merseyside. So obviously in the wake of the the, Hills, the ban on the sun in, in terms of Hillsborough, they found that Eurosceptic opinion was 10% less in Merseyside than the rest of the, the UK. So, um, you know, there's definitely work to be done here to look at us and, and how we fare. But my own opinion, and I know I'm biased in my own way, is that we do not see anything like what happens in the UK, not even anywhere near there are, though, criticisms, obviously, as there always are, of newspapers and broader media organisations in terms of their coverage. And actually, they, they, they come from more than one side. There are undoubtedly some of the parties of the left and also Sinn Féin who feel that they're given a hard time by uh, by particular media outlets, given a harder time than, than other political parties. And they would probably come out with some chapter and verse on, on, on that over the years. And then there's another another argument, which is that, you know, newspapers are staffed, uh, largely populated by middle class urban people with liberal tendencies. And that, that plays out in terms of the coverage of things like the marriage equality and uh, abortion referendums. There are some parties that have legitimate gripes. So it is undeniable that independent news media has a is is not a fan of Sinn Féin. Gives Sinn Féin a rough time. It is, you know, just an established fact. Uh, and then Sinn Féin kind of translates that to the broader media and tries to, you know, you're all against us. But independent media, independent news media do give Sinn Féin a much harder time than they do any other uh, political party. It is very rare you will see a neutral or positive uh, story in an independent news media paper. Where does a direction like that come from? I'm not it culturally it comes from the antipathy from... Is it the, because it's originally a Fine Gael newspaper? No, I think... Is it, it more, because of the ownership of the paper down the years? Yes. Uh, probably historically goes back to the distaste that um, Tony O'Reilly had towards the provisional IRA, the Republican movement throughout the 70s and 80s. That fed down into the executive. The executives, it was... It just... It's, it, it just permeates the, um, the culture of, of, of the place. I've worked there. That's, it, like, it's, it's never said. You just know we're not a fan of the Shinners. You know, therefore, people, stuff that's written with the Shinners is, a, is given a particular slant. But that said, every party thinks at one stage or another that certain media groups are out to get them. So I've had party leaders come up to me in the house and like nobble you and say you're too close to X or Y or you're giving him a great run and you're not doing this to us and why aren't we in the front page and la, 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 la. But I think what you get, and like, let's not forget that newspapers do take a position here. We don't, but newspapers do commonly say on the publication date or two or the weekend before an election, we think you should vote for X. And that happens regularly. So News International's stable of the Sunday Times would have been known in recent years to be a Fine Gael 
leaning paper. Interestingly, they wrote an editorial a weekend or two ago, which was pretty scathing of the party and it rattled around within Fine Gael, uh, because they were concerned about it. But we don't have the kind of, you know, technical or biases of the UK media where they actually arrived at a situation where the Conservative Party chucked the Daily Mirror off the battle bus because they felt that they were so negative to the Conservative Party that there was no point in having them there. So therefore, anyone who's looking for a kind of widespread opinion or a wide balance of opinion, you're not very well served by the parties or the media in the UK because they're both probably culpable. Like, there's no reason for the Conservatives to throw them off the bus. But equally, is there a reason for the Mirror to take such an anti conservative pro-Labour stance and the same applies to the Sun and the Mail and the Telegraph and everybody else. So probably to answer your question around about what way there are biases in media organisations here but they're not as uh, obvious as they are. They're certainly less evident in a part of political sense. Yes. I think what people from a kind of small c conservative point of view here would say that the media is largely as you say Hugh staffed by Liberals and that was probably visible during the two referendums that um, that we've held here in, uh, in in recent years. And it's certainly the case in this newspaper, which is a long and distinguished liberal tradition that I would say, judging by the views of columnists and so forth expressed both in the newspaper and in social media, that there was an overwhelming view in favour of repeal of the Eighth Amendment uh, in uh, in this paper. But at the same time, we were involved in the day-to-day news coverage of mm. that, and we strove every day to reflect both sides of the uh, both sides of that debate. To the intense annoyance of some people who were campaigning for a uh, for repeal of the Eighth Amendment, so it is something that I think we are aware of. And I think it's less evident, though, in part. I'll just give a last thought myself on this in a way as a a kind of media commentator with a quasi-media column from time to time, which is that um, there are increasing pressures on media organisations and very often those pressures, both commercial and the way the audiences are changing in the digital age, are driving newspapers or pressuring them, perhaps, to nail their political colours to the mast. uh, As with, for example, the New York Times vis-a-vis Trump, that there are actual commercial benefits to those kinds of things. There is an emerging trend of, you know, younger journalists quite obviously associating himself with a political, a cultural persuasion, not a party political persuasion or the other. And then we have a counter to that now. We see this a website called grips.ie, which is putting itself out there as the voice of the right attacking the liberal media. And you have an emergence of that type of cultural identity media politics relationship emerging now at a younger level. We're going to move on to another question. This is uh, from Matthew Maxwell. Hi, folks. When you were reporting on Foreigner Murphy's failed by-election bid, can I ask, on what basis do you think that the Fingale higher-ups were sincere in their horror at her comments? There are numerous examples where traveller accommodation in many local councils were blocked because of the votes of Fine councillors, and some Fine councillors even supported some of the more bad-tempered anti-asylum seeker protests in recent times. Is the attitude in Fine one where, as long as you don't use obviously bigoted language, that catering to more bigoted sentiments in Irish society is fair game? Jennifer, what do you think? Um, well, it, it is. It's a really good question. And obviously, it's quite a topical one, given um, recent news coverage of um, the Fine Gael by-election candidate, Verona Murphy. I think that it, it, there's two things here. Firstly, different ministers and the Taoiseach, they were quite quick to disassociate themselves from comments made, in particular by Verona Murphy, about linking asylum seekers to to the Islamic State. Um, having said that, while they did that, we also have the Taoiseach going down to, to Wexford to canvas 
with Verona Murphy and the justification given for that was that she had offered an apology. Now, my take on this is that that would be fair enough if there were one set of comments and maybe they came from a place of not understanding. Um, You know, when there are three different interviews and similar things are being said and some of them are worse than the other, um, I think it's more difficult for Fine to justify defending her uh, and defending those sentiments and defending her apology. Um, And what we saw actually afterwards was uh, a campaign video which blamed the media and and talked about a character assassination. And Leo Varadkar was on um, RT at the weekend and he talked about, he was asked about this, you know, was that good enough for you? Why did you go canvassing? Um, You know, getting to the the heart of that question about disassociating from such comments. And he said that at the time, the apology was enough. But um, after the video came out about the the character assassination by the media, it made him out about the the character assassination by the media. It made him wonder, was the apology genuine? Um, Now, to me, it just seems too little too late. The damage has been done. Um, there wasn't enough done properly to, to disassociate from, from the candidate. The way I understand is the middle of a campaign. Fine Gael's view where there were candidates and Fianna Fáil who made similar, well, you know, similarly offensive remarks um, on, on their social media accounts, uh, historically speaking. So I, I get the political aspect, but I think the party could have done more to disassociate itself. I think they were quite clear when they were asked. Charlie Flanagan completely did uh, uh, distance himself from it, but they could have done more. And, and I think this is something that will come up in the general election. So, Pat, I would have thought, following the relative success of Peter Casey in the presidential election and some of these, you know, mumblings around what happened in Uchterard, various other um, provision centres, that candidates around the country, including in Fine Gael, must be looking at those and figuring how they calibrate, you know, what they do, particularly if they're under pressure. Um, do we have any sense where the kind of votes for people who are putting forward those kinds of more more overt um, anti-immigrant kind of sentiments are coming from? Are they coming from Fine Gael? It is the centre-right party. They, they Centre-right parties in other countries come under pressure from people who espouse those kind of views. I think there is a fringe in Irish politics that is hugely anti-immigrant, uh, but it, it remains a fringe. There's a much greater area then where people are might not be thrilled at the prospect of an asylum, a centre for asylum seekers opening down the end of their road or in the middle of their village where it will change the character, they feel, of the village, overwhelm services and so forth. And, you know, they might be loosely classified as the I'm not a racist, but uh, people. And I think that candidates, and we've seen this, we're seeing this slow, slowly creeping into Irish political discourse. And we saw it this year with Noel Grealish, with Verona Murphy. And there is no sense... I think that there is a political price to be paid from that, but to be paid for that from voters. Now, I think the parties will clamp down on it and won't tolerate it, and we've seen that in Fine Gael. But I think lots of candidates will be looking at that issue and will be sending out signals what, to those What voters. about Matthew's point, Fick, that... Um Many candidates, including many candidates in Fine Gael, including members of the current current government, have proudly, you know, told voters when they uh, when they prevented, for example, traveller accommodation being made available in their constituencies. So there is a kind of a longer history of this. This isn't just this new thing around immigration, which has popped up in the last three or four years. No, it's a, like there's a history of of, of candidates from all parties um, 
you know, leaflet dropping on election time going, oh, by the way, I stopped that traveller mm. accommodation site entering our area. You know, I stopped that site happening there. That's been happening for decades. So, you know, using perhaps negative feelings people may have against travellers is not a new thing in Irish politics. I think it was done on a much more subterranean nod and wink level in the past, like we've said, you know, leaflet drops out before an election campaign. Like, I know for a fact, because I've dealt with them, like, you know, over the last 10 years, candidates would drop leaflets in an area, hoping that the leaflet would then get media coverage as it being a disgrace. And, you know, how dare they, you know, block uh, the travelling community from getting accommodation. And then they would, you know, as they saw it, benefit from that. I think what's happened in the last two years, it's it's more explicit, it's more overt. And is people, it party neutral? Like, is it irrelevant yes. what the parties are? Or do all no, the I think I think I look. Does, I think in my experience, I have seen candidates from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil down through the years use those type of tactics and in elections and independence. I cannot say I have seen anybody from the Labour Party or, or the Greens or the Sinn Fein use those kind of approach. I think it's mostly the two bigger parties independence. And they would admit that themselves. And this question is from Charlie Doran. He asks, how do the Tories, after creating years of austerity and misery, still manage to get the poorest in society to vote for them? They're like cartoon villains, but they're still the most popular party. I just don't understand it, says Charlie. What do you think, Vic? Well, because the, the election wasn't about austerity, it was about Brexit. That's why. Um, while austerity was an element of it, and the NHS kind of polls showed towards the end of the campaign managed to overtake Brexit as people's primary concern. The fact that it became an issue about culture as much as an, an election about, you know, austerity or economic policy it became about, you know, Brexit or pro-Brexit and people who felt they hadn't been listened to. So I think what is to blame for people who may have been suffering the brunt of austerity voting Conservative is the fact that they were ill-served by a Labour leadership which didn't react to their concerns and didn't listen to their concerns. Is there you can't take the Labour, the fact of the Labour leadership out of it or the Labour manifesto. You just can't take it out of it. It's one of the, it's, it's one of the big things and there was a massive rejection of both Corbyn and his platform. There's one Labour leader who has won an election since Harold Wilson, Tony Blair, and he, ran, he won three elections and he won them on a soft left, centre left... Mm. Uh, accommodation with business, accommodation uh, with the status quo uh, in the UK. And I'm afraid that the lesson here for Labour is terribly obvious. The fact that so much of the party seems not just unwilling to learn it, but resentful of those facts is, is yeah, a mystery just, to me. A couple of things I, I, I do think about that. It still remains to be seen quite how unpopular the 2019 Labour manifesto was the 2017 Labour manifesto which was also pretty left wing and proposed a lot of things which were seen as quite extreme at the time was actually pretty popular the the research showed there were there were it went the 2019 went further I've yet to see data that really shows exactly what the electoral response was and it's difficult to divide that out from Corbyn's popularity yeah, and various avoid, other like, things you know, because the, a programme has to be applied by a leader but, because by a it's, le- but, but Pat it's not 1997 anymore and it's not surprising the parties of the centre left who are trashing around trying to figure out what they're at all over the world might decide that a shift to the left to some extent uh, might be involved in a changed circumstance. But isn't the other thing, you look at America uh, and you have all these 
liberals wringing their hands, wondering why people who live in, you know, deprived communities in red states continue voting for Republicans who won't give them the medical care and all these other things that you'd, that you'd think they would want. And the reality is that there are there's all kinds of other fundamental reasons why people vote. And the way that people think about their economic self-interest is more complicated than just, I am a poor person, I'm going to vote for the party which, which claims to be for Who thinks poor of people. themselves as a poor person? If you're a voter at a party like, you know, Blair and Campbell, like, you, know, you may say this is not 1997 and it isn't. But if you're speaking to someone who may be, you know, lower middle class, working class, it's too lazy and easy to say, you know, we are the party of, you know, we will look after you. Well, a lot of those people are aspirational people. But you know, the Labour we'll Party, we'll see the Labour Party slogan was for the many, not the few. Now, it proved out to be a very, a very inaccurate slogan because they the actually were for the few, not the many. But it's the, the same slogan they used in 17, same slogan twice. They used the same one. But you cannot, like, you know, you cannot, like, you know, if you look at Blair's approach, it was aspiration, patriotism being seen to be like, you know, identify with the country and, you know, a lot of the reportage, which you have to kind of correlate with the polling data that you get in an election campaign, shows that people who, you know, those people you talk about in the United States, the people that you're speaking about in the UK, you know, they are patriotic people. They like a kind of the idea of a strong nation, a leader who will stand up for a strong nation. They don't, and you can't disassociate the manifesto from this. They don't like someone who they believe is not standing up for their interests or the country's interests. But something is happening in Western democracies. There is a change in the way that people used to think about these things, which was ultimately that most working class people in the United Kingdom used to vote for the Labour Party and most middle class and wealthier people, a majority of them tended to vote for the Conservatives. That's no longer the case. Actually, mm. they're neck and neck in both. There, there are more middle class Labour voters and there are more working class Tory voters. So that location of economic self-interest, social class and party affiliation has, is, is, seems to be breaking down across the world, doesn't yeah, it? Because the politics is less tribal, but also at a very simple level, people didn't identify with Corbyn as being on their side as being the guy that they viewed his his past affiliations, past support as being deeply problematic. I think Felix put his finger on there on something that it is perhaps unfashionable to talk about in liberal circles that there's the appeal of patriotism to uh, uh, you know to like many think, ordinary people voters. People are generally proud of their country. It's the same here as well. People are proud to be Irish. You can't you know say like you think people in the Labour front bench who mocked Emily Thornberry, mocked you know the white van man with the flag of Saint George. Like that's like mocking someone who goes around with a tricolor in their in their in their window because they might be associated with republicanism. You can't like you know speak to what is probably a majority of the people like that and expect them to rally to your flag. There is there is another part of this. Patrick Frayne was talking about this when he was in with us a couple of weeks ago, which is that under in the Blair years, electorally successful though they were, that the Labour Party lost contact with these working class communities, which were the base of its support. And I was reading about David Miliband, who was the great white hope, you know, of the of the post. Blair supporters um, being parachuted in after spending five years as a you know as an advisor to to Blair parachuted into a safe northern constituency South which you could which, which you could barely even find on a map you know and that if you keep that's doing all, that again that, and again and again no, no, that you're is, going to you're going to lose that connection with I think those, that's with wrong. those votes that has always been part of the the British the way British politics operates it happens happens for both parties that people are parachuted into safe seats the Tories would always try and get you to fight a few unwinnable. Tory uh, unwinnable Labour held seats uh, before they give you uh, a safe seat that's just part of the way they do politics and uh, you know as to you know losing Labour losing the connection 
with its uh, with its voters. Like people forget that Tony Blair won the third election after Iraq. He has been demonised and vilified with some justification for his decision to take the UK into the Iraq war. But his connection with the voters was sufficient to win a general election in 2005 after that. I'm going to give a last thought on this myself. I think that the data also shows, and this is not just in the UK, that the reasons why people vote are becoming decoupled from traditional ABC versus C2T, different social demographics and things like age are becoming far more important, geographical location are becoming far yes. more important. All that is um, edu- education is a huge yeah. divider and a huge predictor of the way people vote. on the basis of people under 30 are going to vote for you because... There's not enough of them. There's not enough of them and they don't turn out to vote a lot. So, you know, this whole the idea of a youth quake is all well and good in so far as it goes. But a youth quake is not going to win you an election. Right. Like going, it's one thing about youth, younger people convincing their elders to vote for social change. It's quite an order to convince them to vote in the general election. Hello, Hugh, Jennifer, Fiat, Pat and all the team. Congratulations on a brilliant podcast. Uh, my name is A.B. Philbin Bowman and I host a podcast called Humans of Politics, where I try to interview politicians as if they are regular human beings. And I'm curious what other political podcasts you guys listen to in your own time, ones you look to for inspiration, ones you just find yourself going back to again and again because they keep you informed. Thanks very much. Some inter-podcast communication there. Fiuk. Actually, my favourite non-Irish Times politics podcast is uh, the one you just mentioned, David Runciman's Talking Politics. I think it's fabulous. It's uh, the pace of it. It's quite, you know, it's quite more contemplative. You know, you can tell, for us, we consume and listen to politics, listen to radio all day, every day. And then I just think for Talking Politics, you turn it on and it's like you're unwinding because the conversation is just slower, more reflective more contemplative and I think that's a fabulous podcast After Hours After Hours of course yes I would agree with you there um, I like the the Times Red Box politics uh, podcast I enjoy that I enjoy the, the pace and the Brexit cast um, uh, podcast and uh, live cast which I just think is brilliant and it's very informal and it's often right after something big has happened in the UK so it's nice to feel like you're almost in the room but to be honest with you because I spend so much of my time thinking about politics, writing about it, listening to it on the radio, worrying about it late at night, um, I tend to listen to politics, uh, uh, podcasts that aren't necessarily political uh, if I have a, a few spares. So like what? Well, the most recent one I listened to, which I thought was brilliant, was The Missing Crypto Queen by Jamie Bartlett. It's just fantastic. It's about the Dr. Rouge who set up her own cryptocurrency and then disappeared and he goes trying to find her and it's been a huge success um, over the last few weeks and loads of articles about it in, in Irish and, and British because there's an Irish link to this as well so I would highly recommend that uh, especially over the Christmas period it's nice and so well produced it's really kind of um, it's got a great air of mystery and you know you, you're, you finish listening to an episode and you think God what happens next I recommend that Pat I've just been looking at my podcast library here and it demonstrates to me yet again how narrow my interests are. So my podcast I subscribe to are the Guardian's Politics Podcast, the FT's Politics Podcast, the Brexit Podcast, the Talking Politics Podcast, the Times Red Box Politics Podcast and the Spectator's Coffeehouse Shots Politics Podcast and also the New York Times, the Daily Podcast. Where did you get the time? Mostly I listen to them in the kitchen at night when cleaning up. You don't sleep, do you? 
We should say that Pat has been ab- above and beyond the call of duty coming into the podcast and doing that and he's really held up his end very well considering everything. I'm going to give mine. I, I share Fiek's love for the Talking Politics podcast. Um, I listen to a lot of the ones that Pat has talked about. I suppose I partly listen to them as well with an ear to trying to figure out what they do well that we could pinch as an idea in terms of either the style or the content. Um, I do like the 538 podcast in the United States quite a lot because it's kind of, it's rooted in something half real, which is data, but they're also, there's a very good dynamic between the the, the various people in the studio. I love AB's uh, podcast. I think it's one of the oh, better yes, ones course. in Ireland. Yes, yes, and yes. it's, uh, there's not as, you know, there's, there's not as many, it'd be great to see more um, Irish podcasts in that in that area. I'd encourage our listeners, uh, Declan, our producer, is shaking his head, no, but I encourage our listeners. It's a great, you know, the barriers to entry are very low. You can get get one up and running relatively easily. Listen, that's it for today. Thanks very much to Pat, to Jen and to Fiek for joining us. And that's it for this special podcast. I want to wish you all a very happy new year. We'll be back very soon next week and next year. Looking forward to 2020 and all that it may bring. But for the moment, thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on all the usual places. I'm not going to reel them off this time. I'll let you off that. Um, you can get me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter, although perhaps not tomorrow. Talk to you soon.